Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. At my school, the most frustrating period of the day to teach is first. It starts at 9 a.m. sharp, which is at least an hour later than most high schools. In an ideal world, this would mean all students in their seats at the bell, pencils sharpened, and notebooks ready. Unfortunately, our students still manage to trickle in late. 9.03, 9.05, 9.15. The worst is when they come in at 9.20 with a breakfast sandwich from the deli across the street. Drives a teacher crazy. But lest this seem like a rant against my students, I'm going to wager that every single one of us has been there recently. Up too late, scrolling through your Facebook newsfeed and just can't get up on time, running out the door at the last minute and watching the train pull away as you get to the subway. Sometimes it's just really hard to get your act together. The ancient Greeks had a solution for this. A wealthy family would have a slave called a pedagogos whose main responsibility was to make sure that the master's son got to and from school without getting into trouble. The Pythagogos also had some disciplinary responsibility, and he might act as a tutor for for the boys' lessons. Um, But he had no authority of his own. He could only enforce what the father wanted for the son. And, needless to say, a Pythagogos that couldn't get the son to and from school successfully would be replaced quickly. However, The Pythagogos was never intended to be permanent. No father wants his son to be constantly followed around by a slave to keep him in line. He wants him to grow up and be able to function in the world on his own. Our translation of Paul's epistle to the Galatians says, The law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. But the Greek actually reads, The law was our Pythagogos until Christ came. So the law was supposed to get us to school on time, so to speak, because we just couldn't get our act together ourselves. It was our disciplinarian and our guardian to tell us how to behave and how to worship God, how to keep the covenant that God offered the children of Abraham. Unfortunately, we failed at all of that. Even the law of God as our Pythagogos wasn't enough because it couldn't make us want to get our act together. It could tell us what to do, but couldn't give our souls life so that we could partake in the covenant and the promise the way that we were intended to. What's more, unfortunately, the law only served to increase the trespass. The more we have someone telling us to be somewhere on time, the more likely we are to stop and get that breakfast sandwich at the deli. My students are living proof of that. However, like a Pythagogos, the law was never meant to be a permanent guardian. It was never God's final answer to the problem of human sin. Our epistle reading tells us that now that faith has come, we can realize our place as children of the living God, freed to love and obey him without the constraints of the law. This is not because the law is abolished— but rather because Jesus met all of its requirements in his sinless life. His sinlessness and his perfection become our clothing through baptism. We enter the water, and when we come out, 
God no longer sees our inability to keep the law, but rather he sees Christ's perfect obedience. That is our new clothing, what gives us the right to be Abraham's children. After we are baptized and clothed with Christ, the natural differences that separate the human race melt away. Ethnicity, social standing, gender, these things are now irrelevant. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What is it like to live in a world where this is actually realized? What does this promise mean for us? The fact that Christianity has spread so thoroughly throughout the Gentile world means that the Jew versus Greek distinction might not seem as relevant today as it did back then. But for centuries before Christ, the Jews believed that the God of Abraham was their God and theirs alone. God commanded them to separate themselves from the Gentiles, from people of other races and cultures, so that they wouldn't be influenced by them to serve false gods. However, that law of separation didn't actually work in keeping the Israelites faithful to the covenant because they did mingle with the other people groups and generally ended up walking away from the one true God. The law was their guardian, but it didn't impart faithfulness to them. Once Christ died and rose again, his faithfulness was given to everyone, Jews and Greeks, and was meant to undo those divisions that the law had set up. And this is where our gospel reading comes in, as a real-time illustration of how Jesus came to save the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So, we have this crazy story about Jesus involving demons, a stampeding herd of pigs, and a bunch of scared townspeople. You really can't make this stuff up. But it's easy to get lost in the drama of Jesus stopping in the middle of an exorcism to grant the demon's request to possess some swine and thereby miss what's really earth-shattering about this story. Jesus stopped what he was doing in Galilee and got in a boat to sail across the sea to the Gergesenes, which was Gentile territory. Once there, he wandered into a cemetery— which no self-respecting, law-abiding Jewish rabbi ever would have done because it would have resulted in ritual uncleanliness. All of this was to seek out a Gentile man haunted by a legion of demons and to heal him. Once that's done, Jesus has to leave pretty much right away because nobody wants him there. But before he sails back, he tells this man to go and tell everyone about his healing. And this is especially significant because in the next story in Luke, Jesus raises the daughter of a synagogue ruler from the dead and tells her father not to tell anyone what happened. Jesus isn't ready for the Jews to know that he can raise people from the dead, but he is absolutely ready for everyone to know that he has come to heal Gentiles. He even defies the law, at least the law according to the Pharisees, to do this, because that law was never the point. The salvation of everyone in the world was the point. We finally have someone who doesn't need the law as Pythagoras, because he knows the right thing to do and he does it. And through that, he fulfills the true intent of the law. 
This healing was a foretaste of the unity that would be achieved on the cross when that question, when the question would not be whether or not you were a physical descendant of Abraham, but whether you were a sinner clothed in Christ in the waters of baptism. And this healing of division applies not only to Jews and Greeks, but also to slaves and free people. That is, the wealth and power structures of society. These mean nothing once we are baptized. Inside the church, everyone's clothes look the same. Everyone wears Christ, rendering wealth and status meaningless. And there is also no male or female, which is another huge change from Judaism, where gender determined your capacity to serve in the temple. We see women taking leadership positions in the early church, exercising their newfound freedom in Christ to teach and serve. In our world today, the chasm between different races, socioeconomic statuses, and genders seem just as wide and deep as they did in Paul's day. They are based on millennia of oppression, oppression which the church as a whole has done little to mitigate, despite the fact that we are unified in Christ. Churches in America twisted the meaning of scripture to maintain white supremacy. Cathedrals were built while the poor starved. Women were relegated to the back pew, expected to show up with casseroles for the church potluck, but not to open their mouths and speak. In fact, we might wonder if these are divisions that we even want healed. Maybe it's easier to exist in our subgroups, where we, under, where we are understood and acknowledged and feel each other's pain. Bridging the chasms of race, social status, and gender requires the oppressed and the oppressor to come face to face with each other. And that's not easy. But the unity that Paul describes in our epistle is not a cheap unity. It is not a simple erasure of past divisions. For us to come out from under the law and from under the burden of sin, Jesus had to die on the cross and rise again. The sin and the oppression that kept us apart under the law required a perfect blood sacrifice to heal. In our baptism, we understand that we are helpless in the face of sin and that we are therefore buried with Christ and raised to new life with him. For the oppressor, this means being humbled by the reality of sin to understand what grace and forgiveness really mean. For the oppressed, this means being lifted up by the forgiveness and love that are so freely given to all, regardless of one's place in society. Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch woman who was imprisoned in a concentration camp during World War II because she hid Jews from the Nazis, tells the story of meeting one of her guards at a church in Germany two years after the war ended. Recognizing him immediately, all she could think about was standing naked in front of him in the camp and of watching her sister waste away and die during the imprisonment. But through the course of their encounter, by Jesus' grace and by his forgiveness for her own sin— she was able to extend her hand to this former guard and call him her brother. This is the power of the cross. 
Jesus Christ's death and resurrection brings down the high and mighty and raises up the meek and lowly until everyone is standing equal at the foot of the cross with one commonality, that we are all sinners freely forgiven. No other difference matters because Jesus has borne the pain and made himself the sacrifice that wipes away our divisions. What binds us together is that we failed under the law, and as one people, we are now baptized, forgiven, and clothed with Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.